So here we are, and we combined these two passages today because, of course, it's really the same same uh, topic that is being discussed in both passages. So thought it would be good to uh, tie them together, and it's about true greatness or, or greatness from God's perspective. Um, What is it to be great? And uh, of course, there's nothing intrinsically the matter with the desire to be great, as we're going to see in a moment. But uh, the important thing is to make sure our definition of greatness is the right one and our pursuit of greatness is um, taking place through uh, the right things. So as we pick up now, remember Jesus has been drilling into the heads and hearts of his disciples that his mission as the Messiah is not going to be what they had thought. And so once again, here in the, in the first few verses uh, that we read, we see he's, he's reiterating what he's previously said. The son of man is, is going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. He's going to die and this, of course, was not at all the picture that the people had in mind of, of the messianic mission. So Jesus is correcting that, and he's wanting to get them to um, you know, understand that, that it's different than they had thought and what everybody else had thought. But he also then is continuing uh, to show them that the way of God's kingdom is very different than what they had previously thought. And the kingdom of God is going to be unlike all other kingdoms, all other kingdoms, greatness is identified by power and ruling over others, but in God's kingdom, it's going to be marked by serving others. And and so this is the message and Jesus is starting with his, his followers, this, this band of men that he's chosen. They're the foundation. They're going to be the ones that are going to carry the message ultimately out to the world. So he's starting with them and instructing them on the way things are actually going to be. But what, what we're going to see is that uh, they're not getting it necessarily. Uh, they're not getting it like we would think that they, they should. And we can't be too uh, hard on them because we still haven't gotten it today, um, many of us, after uh, all of these centuries. So, but as, as we just look at the, um, the subject of greatness, now, there is an innate desire for greatness. This is a human characteristic. And it's actually understandable if we think of the fact that we are made in the image of God. Of course, God is great. God is the greatest. We're made in the image of God and we're created for the glory of God. So this this sense inside of all of us that the, you know there, there should be some greatness that we uh, attain to is is built into us. So 
it's not a bad thing in and of itself. And we need to see that right from the beginning. God intends us for greatness. That there's, God has a great thing that he is planning for us. And it, to some degree, it unfolds throughout our lives. And that's different for every person. But we're all of us headed finally and, and ultimately to a state of greatness. That's what God has for us. So, so it's something that's been built into us. You know, um, it's amazing how you see this in children. You see little children. Daddy, daddy, watch this. And, you know, there's some feet that they're going to accomplish as you watch them. They're going to jump off a little wall or something. And then, and of course, you're going to go, yes, that's, that is great. That's such a great job. And then they're going to get up and they're going to do it over and over and over again. Uh, because daddy, daddy, watch again. And it's, it's a natural thing. And we love that. Or, or mommy, mommy, watch this. Or in my case, grandpa, grandpa, watch this. That's what's happening for me these days. But there's also this interesting thing. Not only do, uh, especially the ones with the siblings, uh, not only do they want to be acknowledged as great in what they're doing, it's like, Grandpa, Grandpa, I'm the greatest though, right? I'm better than my brother. (laughs) I'm better better than my sister at this. It's a human uh, characteristic, and we all understand that. So point simply being again, that the desire isn't always wrong. The desire for greatness, it depends on your motive and means of attaining the greatness. So the fact that these guys wanted to be great, it's interesting. Jesus doesn't say to them, uh, you shouldn't want that. He just says to them, uh, you're going about it the wrong way. So as we look at the stories, and let's look at both of these stories for a moment. Um, it's quite comical when you stop and think about what was going on here. So in the first story, uh, we have the disciples on the road um, with Jesus. They have, uh, they're passing through Galilee. And then when it comes to verse 33, it says they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? So evidently, as they're walking along, these guys are having an argument and Jesus uh, overhears this dispute that's taking place. But now he very pointedly asks them, um, so what were you disputing over? And notice what it says, but they kept silent. (laughs) So they're busted. And no doubt right now they're feeling pretty stupid because these are grown men and what are they disputing about? They are disputing about which one is going to be the greatest. I mean, and this is, when you think about grown men doing this, you think, wow, that seems so childish. <laughs> and it is in some ways, but it's, again, it's part of the human condition. So, but like I said, Jesus doesn't say, well, you shouldn't talk about greatness. He just says to them, he gives them 
some clarity on it. And he sat down, called the 12, and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last. He shall be last of all and the servant of all. So, okay, you want to be first? That's a good thing. That's fine. You want to be great? Fantastic. This is how to do it. To be the greatest of all, you're going to be the servant of all. Now, as it is with so many different things, uh, the biblical picture of reality is like, um, it's, it's the upside down or probably better way to understand. It's the right side up version of things. So the world has its idea of greatness, but Jesus says, well, actually, no, this is real greatness. And so you want to be great? That's good. Here's how to be great. You're going to be the servant of all. Now, this is pretty straightforward. Jesus then actually takes a child and uh, Put, pulls him up on his knee and, and begins to use the child as an illustration. And there was another occasion where Jesus said to the disciples at one point, you know, unless you become, unless you're converted and become like a child, you won't even enter the kingdom. And when he uses a child, he's, he's taking the, the child in all of its simplicity and all of the innocence and impurity and, and those things. And that's what he's saying. Now, of course, in that world and in the world today, uh, children in and of themselves don't have any real power. Children aren't going to be able to dominate someone or rule over someone. And so Jesus takes a child and uses them as an illustration. Now, I think, and I think we should think, that this was a pretty um, clear communication on the part of Jesus of, of what greatness is really like. And, and, you know, you would think at this point that they would get it and they'd say, okay, yeah, that's right. So we don't want to have those disputes or those arguments anymore. Jesus told us how to be great. Um, but then when we come to the next story, we find James and John sort of sneaking off from the other guys and getting Jesus alone and saying, hey, um, when you set up the kingdom which he's been trying to tell them that's not going to happen the way you think it is. But hey, when you do that, we want to sit at your right hand and your left. But listen, here's the other component that Matthew tells us that Mark doesn't. They pulled their mother into it. And so it was actually, Matthew tells us that it was, it's like they said, mom, mom, go, go talk to Jesus and you vouch for us. You tell him that, yeah, we're, we should be at his right and his left. So the, the mother of James and John is the one who actually goes and says, uh, Jesus, I want you to do me a favor. When you get into your kingdom, I want my two sons to sit at your right hand and your left. Now, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. Now, think about this. He says, you don't know what you're asking for. Now, the mother of James and John, most people think that she was the sister of Mary. And that could be true. Doesn't say specifically that she was, but you could put some passages together. It seemed like she was. Whether she was Mary's sister or not, she was very close. She was part of this close band of women. She would have been with the women 
that were there on the day that Jesus was crucified. And when she was standing there seeing Jesus on the cross, he was there in the center and on his right hand and on his left hand were two other people. Think of what she might have thought of then. Because Jesus said to her, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm gonna be baptized with? And that was a reference to the suffering that was coming. Can you drink the cup? Jesus was gonna, remember, he was gonna drink the cup of God's wrath. And I can only imagine that the mother of James and John at that point when she saw Jesus on the cross, I would imagine in her own mind it flashed back that she asked that her sons would be on his right and his left when he entered into his glory. This is the place where Jesus is entering into his glory. You know, that in and of itself should tell us that we can be thankful that God doesn't always give us what we ask him to give us. Because we're thinking we're asking for something, but we don't know. We don't know everything. And we might be asking for something that if we knew what we were asking for, we would never be asking for it. And I'm sure if the mother of these two uh, young men knew the cup that Jesus would drink and, and the baptism that he would be baptized with, uh, she wouldn't be asking. But that's what happened. So now... As we read on in the 10th chapter here, once this happens, the other 10 are really annoyed. Verse 41, and when the 10 heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. (laughs) Now they might've been trying to take the high road and said, didn't you learn the lesson that Jesus taught us when he took the child and put him on his lap? They might've been trying to take that high road, but I don't think that's really why they were mad at them. I think they were mad because James and John just beat them to the punch. It's like, oh, we wanted to do that because we're supposed to be there. Not you guys. But the thing in all of this that is so interesting to me is these are the men that Jesus is choosing and, and grooming and equipping to be his messengers to take the gospel of the kingdom into the, into the whole world. But they're not even getting it. They're, they're not even getting it. Their, their um, behavior here is uh, disappointing to say the least, but it is not uncommon. And in 2,000 years, Uh, nothing has really changed because we can find the same kinds of things today. We can find the same kind of ambition sometimes in church leaders. Uh, We can find people who on the one hand might give the best sermon you could possibly give on what it is to be a servant and turn around and behave like a dictator. That, that unfortunately is what has happened and what does happen. So this teaching is so important. And, and think of it, it's so, like, like I said earlier, upside down. It's so different than the world has always thought. And Jesus makes it clear here, this is the thinking of the world 
he, he says, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. This is how greatness is determined in the world. The more people you have power over, the more people you rule over, the greater you are. That's the world's take on it. But Jesus is coming and he's bringing something completely different. Now think for a second, just let your mind just sort of scan history and think of most people that have ruled that, that we can think of. You think back to the Caesars who were ruling at the time of these things, you know, think into the future beyond that and the, the various rulers. And you could probably count on one hand those who have ruled benevolent, benevolently, uh, those who have ruled graciously, those who have ruled with their people primarily in mind, you could probably count them on one hand in all of history. Why? Because the rulers of the Gentiles, they think a power over people, that, that's what it's all about. And that's what has been the case, right? And e- even today, now, Remember, there was a time that a politician was uh, a public servant. That was the idea. You're going to go into politics because you're going to become a public servant. You want to serve the people. You want to benefit the people. You want to help the people. Now, how many of us today, when you think of politician, how many people today even think of public servant? That's like just been removed to a large degree because most People, at least the ones that are in the, the public eye, um, the ones that are getting most of the coverage and so forth, uh, it doesn't seem like their agenda is for the people. It seems like they have their own personal agenda. And this is all about themselves. And that's just typical of the way the world has worked. But Jesus is coming and he's just turning everything upside down. His kingdom, you, many times you can, you can kind of look at a situation and if you want to know what God thinks about it, some, in some cases you can just think the opposite and that's, that's, that's what God thinks about it. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus said, um, he said, that which is highly esteemed among people is an abomination to God. <laughs> so think of all the things that... that as humanity, all the things that we esteem, all the things that we think are, yeah, this is the greatest and this is the way to do this and this is the way to be that and all that. What does God think about that? Well, that's all an abomination to God. So it's, it's a total upside down situation. But like I said earlier, it's actually a right side up situation. So greatness is a, is a good thing, but it all depends on what we understand greatness to be and how we seek greatness. So let's talk about two things, the wrong way to greatness and the right way to greatness. So what is the wrong way to greatness? Well, the wrong way to greatness is through pride in the exertion of power. But that's, again, how most people think of greatness. Pride is what's driving you know, there are, there are people, this, this is interesting and this is current. You know, there are people that hate the Christian message and one of the reasons they hate it 
ironically, is because of the emphasis on humility. The more people move away from a a biblical ethic, the more they begin to despise uh, the, the biblical virtues. And so biblically, and even across culturally, for so much of history, Humility has been seen by, by many as a virtue. Now, uh, some people didn't see it that way. And, and actually, one of the reasons why the Romans despised Christianity was the emphasis on humility. That humility is weak in their mind. And, and of course, they were proud Romans. We are the Romans. We're the guys who conquered the world. And it was that, that pride in themselves that kept driving that empire forward. But the gospel puts the emphasis on humility. And so we cannot let the world influence us when we think of what greatness is. Because the, the ideas of the world do always creep into the church. So in the day that we're living in, you know, the church has always had a um, a business component to it. When you get to be a certain size as a church, you, there's just naturally a business component to it. And that's okay, fine. It's, it is what it is. But then what happens is some people come along and they say, well, you know, the, the church, of course, yes, has this business component and the church is a corporation. And so, uh, you know, this is how corporations function. This is how corporations operate. So let's just take what the corporations do and let's move it into the church. And this is how we'll run the church. And you know, some of that stuff is okay because it's just practical accounting and, and things like that. That's fine. But when the mentality becomes like this, okay, so uh, in the corporate world, the, the person you know, the most important person in a corporation is the chief executive officer and the CEO. So, okay, now the church, well, okay, the church is a corporation too. So the pastor, let's not, you know, pastor is like an old fashioned word that, you know, it's like a shepherd, you know, Bible stuff that people don't know anything about. Let's just call him the CEO. That happens. That's not, I'm not making this up. This is reality. The minute the pastor prefers to be known as the CEO rather than the shepherd, the ship is already sinking. That is a massive problem. But that's the infiltration of the world into the church. Now, many times the pastor is the CEO. That's not the problem. The problem is when the idea of the CEO and what that means in regard to power, what it re- means in regard to position, what it means in regard to compensation, and all that's when it becomes the, the, the problem. So how is it that having this very clear teaching by Jesus right in front of us and, and you know, many times preaching it, how is it that, that we miss this? I was on the phone with a friend last night, and he, I don't want to give too many details because I don't want to expose this, but, uh, you know, there's a, a very well-known church in a region of the country with thousands and thousands of people, and they've literally just imploded. It, they've just gone from, 
you know, 15,000 members down to 5,000 members and their, you know, their, their uh, offerings and so forth have been cut in half or more and all of this. Why did this happen? Well, this happened because the pastor of the church forgot that he was supposed to be the servant of all and wanted to be the Lord of all and it just ultimately wrecked everything. So this is a real danger. This kind of stuff happens. And it's, it's the root of it is pride. Pride is the root of the pursuit of power. And as we've all heard, power corrupts. We've heard that, right? And then we've heard that somebody else added to it, uh, an absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know, it's true. It's really true. Sometimes people ask me. So I, I have been, it's hard to believe that I have, been pastoring almost 40 years. It's hard for me to believe because I don't even feel like I'm older than 40 years old. So, (laughs) but you know, people will ask me, so in all of the years in ministry, Brian, what, what do you see? What, you know, what, what is, what is the danger? What are the pitfalls? You know, what should we watch out for? And you know what I always say? I say, watch out for pride. Pride and power are the two uh, components, and they, they really kind of go hand in hand. Pride precedes the pursuit of power, but that's the destructive force so often in, in ministries. And, but here's the thing about pride. You know, pride is subtle. It's subtle, and we all have our battles with it. We, we all battle with pride at times. That's the important thing, battling it and beating it back and fighting against it. Because it's there. It resides in the human heart. There's not one of us that's not prideful about something. And there's always these temptations for pride to to take over. So it starts off subtly. And it's just allowing for pride in, in some areas. But then it can just begin to take over your whole life. And And pretty soon, you're all about power. You're all about control. And those are such dangerous things. So recognize that it's subtle. Recognize that it's progressive. Recognize that it starts off small. But if you allow it, if you cater to it, if you don't deal with it, it's only going to get worse. Now, I have been really blessed in life. I have, I live with a pride killer. Her name is Cheryl. <laughs> that, she can detect pride when it's not even there. <laughs> Thus, we have many arguments because I'm not prideful. No, I'm not prideful, honey. That's your imagination. I'm not prideful. No, she, she can, she's good at detecting pride. And there are times where, you know, God has used her so many times because it's subtle, pride is subtle. So I, I'm not really seeing that I'm prideful about something. I'm just thinking that I'm right about it or whatever. And, and, you know, she'll just look at me and go, you know, that's your pride. And of course, my response is, no, it's not. You're prideful thinking that I'm prideful. <laughs> but, you know, most of the time God is on her side. So she ends up winning because... <laughs> He's, he's there hammering on me as well. But listen, we all battle with this. 
But like I said, we got to battle it. We got to fight it. And we can't give place to it. We can't give room to it. And Jesus knew that unless these guys got this vital message of servant leadership, the kingdom wasn't going to go far. And, and all throughout the history of the church, the 2,000 years of church history, wherever you see the church implode, it's always connected to these two things, pride and power. Servant leadership. Jesus says, this is it. Be, be the servant. Here's, here's a really interesting thing. Right now in the corporate world, many people in um, the area of you know, consulting and so forth, uh, I, met, I met this guy in Australia a while back, and he's, he's a Christian man. He consults for large corporations, and he helps them with their, you know, managing their people and so forth. And he, he's, he's telling us, and I've seen this in other literature I've read as well, that actually the world is catching on to a servant leadership model. So actually, in the corporate world today, uh, you know, heads of corporations will say, you know, we, we've got to change our approach to dealing with our employees. We've got to take a, a more uh, servant kind of attitude. They actually refer to it as servant leadership. So the irony is that <laughs> the corporate world, and granted, the, the bottom line for the corporate world is always profit. So it's like, well, look, we're going to be more profitable if we do this. So let's do this. But the irony is that the corporate world is getting the idea of servant leadership and the place where it should always have been modeled is all caught up in, in the power grab. A young guy named Kyle Strobel um, and Jamin Coggins, uh, these two guys wrote a book a few years ago called uh, titled The Way of the Dragon and the Way of the Lamb. And it's basically an expose uh, or... or and not, not totally an expose because they're not talking specifically about uh, anybody, but it's, it's just addressing the issue within the church of this, this power thing and lamenting and calling to repentance those in church leadership who are operating from the base of, of power and dominating and controlling and that, that sort of thing. So the world's catching on, maybe for the wrong motive, but at least they're catching on. This is what Jesus showed us from the beginning. And ultimately, of course, as we're going to see, Jesus didn't just teach it, he modeled it. So the wrong way to, to greatness is pride and the pursuit of power. What's the right way? Well, the right way is humility and service. The right way is humility. So although among, for some people, humility is a bad, bad thing, for God, it's at the top of his list. And humility is the surest protection against self-destructing through pride. Being humble. And you know, when you're in any kind of leadership, it's always a good idea to remember that you're there by the grace of God. You're there by the mercy of God. You know, Paul was really good at that. He, he would talk about, at one point, 
<coughs> he even compared himself with the other apostles. He said, I actually labored. I worked harder than all these guys. And he was right. He did. He said, but I did it by the grace of God. So he, in the end, he didn't take credit for it. And, and humility is something that God delights to see in his people. And listen, God is humble. God is humble. Jesus said it. He said, I am meek and humble in heart. Those words came from the son of God. Wow. I am meek and humble in heart. God, the creator of all things. So if the the creator of the universe is meek and humble in heart, how could we, his little creatures that are like dust mites, how could we be arrogant and prideful? I don't know, but we do find ways to be arrogant and prideful, don't we? But listen, Jesus is our example. And so it's through, it's through humility and service. And God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be humbled. Jesus said that. Jesus, you remember the story, John chapter 13. You remember the, the incident there where Jesus, he has his disciples together, and it's right there uh, at the Last Supper, and he does the unthinkable. He strips himself down to a towel. He, he puts on the costume of a servant and he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. Now, washing the feet was like, you know, just like we would think of it today. Well, that's what it was then. It's no different. I mean, if somebody said to you, hey, you need to wash my feet, you would say, get lost. I'm not washing your feet. <laughs> right? Who wants to wash somebody's feet? Well, nothing's changed. I mean, that's the way they thought about it then. And so the, the low servant was the one who, that was their job. And, you know, servants don't really get a choice of whether they're going to do it or not. It's just, this is what you do. You're the servant, wash the feet. So Jesus gets up from dinner. And he's got this basin full of water. And everybody's looking at him like, what is he doing? And suddenly he begins to wash their feet. And Peter says, Lord, you are never going to wash my feet. No way. This is so far below you. That's what Peter's indicating there. And Jesus said, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter says, okay, give me a whole bath then. That's fine. But here's the point that I want to make. Jesus says at a, at a certain point, he says, they, they want to know, what, what are you doing? Why, why are you doing this? This is wrong. And this is what he said. He said, you call me Lord and Master, and that is right, because that is who I am. And if I, your Lord and Master, have done this for you, then you should do it for each other. It's like, whoa. Whoa. I, your Lord and master. I love what Jesus said. That's right. That is who I am. Yep. I came from heaven. 
I came from the Father and I'm gonna go back to the Father. And I'm giving you an example. Now, I have discovered this. You know, I'm okay with referring to myself as a servant. And I don't mind if other people refer to me as a servant. But you know what I really don't like is I don't like to be treated like a servant. (laughs) That's where it gets. It's like, oh, you know, I'm just the Lord's servant. Okay, hey, go do that. Hey, who do you think you're talking to? What do you mean go do that? (laughs) Have you ever had that experience? Yeah, I, I, I like being identified as, as the Lord's servant, but just don't try to boss me around. Just don't try to tell me what to do. I don't like that part of it. Well, then I'm not really a servant. I'm just pretending to be one. Again, because a servant just does what they're told to do. And Jesus, that's what he's saying. I'm your Lord and master. I did this. Now you, you need to do this for one another. And then he said at the end of that, he said, happy are you if you do these things. You know, if you live the way Jesus called us to live, if we live serving him by serving other people, you know, your life will actually be happy. The most miserable thing a human being can do is live to serve themselves. Have you ever noticed that the people who are living for themselves are the most miserable people on planet Earth? Because you you can never satisfy yourself. It's an insatiable, bottomless pit that can never be filled. And so the frustration sets in because you just, you can't get enough. And, and you know, life, life is miserable. The, the person who's just serving, there's happiness in that. Now, Jesus, so the right way to greatness, humility, and in humility, serving. Serving one another. Now, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, he talks about this in this this classic passage on Jesus, our Lord Lord and Master, um, who did... Uh, come down from heaven, Paul writes about it like this. And I'm going to read you the, um, from the NIV, the New International Version. It says this. It says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, (coughs) he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Wow. So as the NKJV reads, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the mind. And, and the way the NIV puts it is it, it shows the context in your relationship with one another. In your relationship with one another. You know, 
life is all about relationships, right? And life is best when relationships are good. And when there's tension or a fracture in a relationship, that, that's when you know, life becomes so difficult. If we would practice just serving one another, life would be much more enjoyable. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ. In your relationships with one another, have the mindset of Christ. Not, not a mindset of personal ambition that leads to disputing and bickering. I mean, that we've got it right there in those stories, right? These guys were just bickering with each other. There, there was all this contention, but why? It was because they were wanting to lord over one another, not serve one another. So Jesus sets the example. And notice this here, and this is such a great translation, where it says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Wow. That's what Jesus did. He didn't use his divinity to benefit himself. He used it to benefit us. And so let this mind be in you. And so this is greatness according to God. This, this is true greatness. And, and you know, at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, when our lives have come to an end and we're standing there before the judgment seat of Christ, um, there's only going to be one thing that matters, and that is what God thinks. That's all that's going to matter. And, and we need to get that in our heads now. One of the reasons we need to get it in our heads is because none of us know when that day is going to come. I don't, I don't know when I'm going to actually be standing there. So I, I, I want to make sure that my life is in order. So it, if that time comes unexpectedly, like it does for many, then I will be found doing the thing that God wants me to do, which is serving him by serving others. And the final thing is notice Jesus saying, whoever desires to be first shall be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served. As we've already said, if anybody had the right to be served, any, anyone had the right to command people to serve him, Jesus did, but he didn't. But he came rather to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, this is the great news. If Jesus had served himself, we would be lost. But he gave up his life so we could be saved. So we could be saved forever. He gave his life a ransom. He paid the price to deliver us from the consequence of our sins, which is eternal separation from God. He paid that price himself so we could enjoy eternal life. That's what he did. That's the mindset. And, you know, if we keep that in mind, that is going to help us in our service to other people. Because, you know, at the end, it's like, Lord, what am I doing for you that you haven't 
done for me already a, a billion times over or in a, a billion times of a greater way. So it's a small thing that I would be a servant. It's a, it's a great thing that you would be a servant. It's a small thing that I would be a servant. Help me to be a servant. But it's because Jesus served, it's because of that that we can be saved. And so final word as we close, if you're not saved, if you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, knowing your sins have been forgiven, knowing that you actually have a place in his eternal kingdom, then today's the day for you to enter into that. And you do that by receiving the Savior, personally receiving him. The servant king who came and served by laying down his life so we could all live. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace, your goodness. Lord, your example, your instruction, and most importantly, Lord, your work of service on the cross that made a way for us to be saved forever. Lord, I pray if there's anyone with us today that hasn't yet connected with you through that that great offering of your life as a ransom for many, Lord, would you help them to do that today? And Lord, for the rest of us who have already um, received that and applied that to our lives, Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, to win the battle by your grace over our own pride. Help us, Lord, to walk in humility Help us to recognize, Lord, that the greatest in the kingdom is not the one who exerts the most power over others, but it's the one who serves. And Lord, you did that. You showed us that. Help us to, by your grace, do it as well. And we pray this in your name. Amen.